there are, um, there are two statements of Jesus that have become sort of the, the de facto creed or creeds for many progressive Christians in our Western society. In fact, many believe that these two statements of Jesus are the summary message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first statement they would say is, love your neighbor as yourself. The second is that they may be one as we are one. Well, that first statement, love your neighbor as yourself, is from the law. And of the law, the psalmist writes this. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So we know that this statement is good, it is perfect, it is sure, but it's not the gospel. In fact, when Jesus said this, he was answering a question. Listen to the question. It's from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, that is Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus tied the command to love your neighbor tightly with the command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I will tell you, this is not good news. This is not the good news. It's not the gospel. Do you know why? Because you failed to do this. I failed to do this. You're probably not doing it right now. If the most important commandment of all, according to Jesus, is that we're to love God with all that we've got, and also to love our neighbors as ourselves, then, then we're doomed. And contrary to what many will say, trying to get better at it is not going to work. If you believe that you can achieve salvation by loving your neighbor, which is what many progressive liberal Christians will tell you today, then I'm going to do what, I'll do what R.C. Sproul suggested. I'll steal your wallet, and you will have to love me. And if you don't, you will have to find someone who will love me in your place, which is exactly what Jesus does. But what about that prayer, Jesus' prayer for Christian unity when when he prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17? verses 20 to 22, and he he prays this. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, those disciples in front of him, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus' prayer there, that they may be one even as we are one. It, it's also seen as the, the highest aim of some in, within the Christian church, so much so that many churches have laid aside important doctrinal truths in order just so that we can all get along. 
They've laid aside the penal substitutionary atonement, the work of Christ on the cross. They've rejected a literal resurrection. They deny any kind of future judgment. They may even scoff at any notion of an actual seven-day creation and disregard, really, the authority of Scripture, all in the name of unity. We can jettison these other things because Christ prayed that we may be one. But unity for the sake of unity is not unity. If the church is to be one as the Father and Son are one, then we must stand together on something. Again, R.C. Sproul, put it this way. He said, many people want to promote visible unity at the expense of the truth. But it should be evident that if individuals cannot agree on the basics of the truth, they're not united in any meaningful sense. Unity at the expense of truth is a foundationless unity. But that does not mean the pursuit of unity. Even visible unity is in itself sinful. We should be seeking a unity that does not compromise the gospel. That's what Jesus prayed for. But I want to take a step back here this morning because what Jesus is doing in John's gospel, even as he builds up to his high priestly prayer that we may be one, he's laying a foundation for, for what will later become this prayer for unity. See, when Jesus prays that they may be one, he does so on the basis of, in fact, he says, even as, you, even as we are one, he says to his Father. That the church may be one, even as the Father and Son are one. And so church unity, whether it's within a local congregation like us in this room, or churches who have united together in denominations or around confessions of faith, or even in groups like last week I went to Together for the Gospel conference where over 12,000 churchmen gathered together to stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church unity is a reflection of the unity of the Father and the Son. Church unity is a reflection of the unity of the Father and the Son. Now, just so that you understand, um, I would argue that this line of thinking, as this develops throughout the New Testament, it will include the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk a little bit about His role today. But at this point in church history, as Jesus speaks these words here in John chapter 5, where we're going to look in a moment, He's not yet revealed the, the full extent of the role of the Spirit in the life of the church as a whole or in the life of believers even individually. He's primarily talking here about the relationship of the Father and the Son. Now, after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, will take a much larger role in the life of the church and in the lives of believers. But for now, Jesus is explaining for the Jews standing in front of Him just exactly who He is in relation with His Father. So I want to read this passage from John chapter 5. Turn to John chapter 5. I'm going to read just verses 16 through 24. John chapter 5, gospel according to John. I'll start in verse 16. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, and the, the son, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these He will show Him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. And He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Let's just pray one more time. Lord, this is a dense passage of Scripture. Help us to understand that we may glorify You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the context of these statements that Jesus makes here, really from verses 19 through 24, He keeps going, but we'll pick that up um, next week, Lord willing. But the context of these statements is very important. So Jesus... His words in verse 17 when he said, My father is working until now and I am working. That actually, that actually amplifies the controversy concerning the Sabbath. And verse 18 tells us that the Jews rightly understood his claims. They understand, they understood what he was saying in verse 17. And so Jesus now continues the thought that he began in verse 17. And he starts this monologue that begins in verse 19. Now, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, as we were working through this passage, as we looked at verses 16 through 18, Jesus is actually continuing the work of the Father. That is, as we mentioned, the work of creating and sustaining all things. He he is continuing the work of keeping covenant, God's promises. Jesus is continuing the work that the Father began of redeeming for Himself a people for His own possession. He's continuing the work of purifying His own people to holiness and and also in feeding them their daily bread. And now beginning here in verse 19, we're going to see today that, that He's doing this as a way to identify Himself explicitly as God the Son. And as a result, His enemies are seeking all the more to kill Him. J.C. Ryle, who was um, probably not the most famous person from Liverpool, but the Bishop of Liverpool in the 1800s, he wrote this of this passage. He said, Nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of His own unity with the Father. His divine commission and authority and the proofs of His Messiahship as we find in this discourse. And these words, spoken in light of verse 18. Don't forget that these words are spoken in light of verse 18. They're actually, eventually, directly going to lead to His crucifixion. Look again at 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, according to Jesus, what is the relationship of the Son to the Father? That's the the big question before us this morning. And so as we work our way through this, I want to point out that the listener 
whether it, that is the literal people standing in front of Jesus who heard him physically say these words, or those listeners who hear him speak these words even today, this, this listener can only respond with one, or two, one of two possible responses. There are only two possible responses to Jesus' words here. Either you will accept the truth claim, and this is a truth claim, he's claiming this to be true, you will accept the truth claim that Jesus is the Son of God, or you must hate him, hate him as a blasphemer, and seek to destroy him. There's no other option. See, if you leave here indifferent, not caring or apathetic, then ultimately you leave here rejecting Jesus' claim that he is equal to God. You leave here denying that he is doing the work of the Father, the work of creating and sustaining all things. Of, 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 you leave here denying the work that he is keeping God's covenant. If you leave here kind of apathetic to this, You leave here apathetic to the claim that Jesus is continuing the work that the Father began of redeeming for himself a people for his own possession. That he's continuing the work of purifying those people to holiness. You also don't care that he's giving us our daily bread. There's no middle ground. Apathy ultimately equals rejection, which ultimately equals hatred. Either you will accept the truth claim that Jesus is the Son of God or you must hate Him as a blasphemer and seek to destroy Him. And those are hard words. This is clearly the dichotomy that the Jews faced here in John chapter 5. Even in the opening words of verse 19, we're alerted to the fact that this is, this is an important statement. This is a significant statement that Jesus is about to make. He says, truly, truly, I say to you... So. If you're like me and you grew up with the King James, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee. More than just, this is more than just another important teaching. Jesus is actually escalating the conflict that he has with the Pharisees. They're seeking all the more to kill him because he is equating himself with God. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you. I don't point out this is really just a, a further development a further explanation of what John has said right in the very first verse of this book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jesus here begins to explain how this is even possible. So look here at verse 19. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The, uh, the thrust of this verse is this. Whatever that accusation in verse 18 might mean, that accusation that He is making Himself equal with God, Jesus does, does not mean any kind of independence from His Father. He's not, he's not independencing himself from the Father. In fact, the truth is that the Son can do nothing, literally, he says, from himself or of his own initiative. Now, be careful, because this is not saying that Jesus is helpless. This is actually speaking of the, of the interconnectedness of the Godhead, that you cannot separate God the three in one. John 
tells us, you remember that verse, that God so loved the world that He gave, again the King James, His only begotten Son. The Nicene Creed specifies, kind of explains that idea of Jesus being the only begotten Son. and uh, All Christians hold to the Nicene Creed, um, whether we really understand that or not. The Nicene Creed says this, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made. And of course, the, that creed, the Nicene Creed, goes on from there. But the truth is right there. Jesus is the only begotten Son, John 3.16, and He is begotten, not made. In other words, He is the one and only unique and uniquely sent by God, God. God the Son. The Son of God. But we, we also rightly see Him as God, period. Again, the very first verse in this book and the word was God period how about John chapter 1 verse 18 no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the father's side he has made him known but if that's too vague do you remember Thomas's confession poor doubting Thomas we shouldn't even call him doubting really Doubting Thomas, he makes a confession when he sees the risen Christ. Do you remember what that confession was? It's John 20, verse 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Paul also proclaimed Jesus to be God. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, he writes this to Pastor Titus. He says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works." God, Paul calls him, calls Jesus our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it wasn't just others claiming that he was God. He took, he actually takes the, the ultimate divine title for himself. In John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. That's, that's Yahweh. That's God's reserved name for Himself. And yet Jesus, Jesus is submissive to the Father. See, not only does Jesus always do what is pleasing to the Father, John chapter 8, verse 29 says those words, but he also claims here that, that he only does what he sees his father doing. Jesus is submissive to his father. And, and I want to acknowledge that our flesh hates the word submit. 
submit or submission. We hate the concept of submission. But Jesus is submissive to the Father. The Apostle Paul, when he calls on Christians, specifically Philippian Christians, but really us, and he calls on us to to imitate Christ, he does so like this. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, he writes this, Have this mind among yourselves, speaking of Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I could just add here in parentheses, going back to the introduction to the law, in this passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, In that passage, we can clearly see that Jesus loved his Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself. That's just kind of an aside about him fulfilling the law for us that I mentioned earlier. It's only good news because Christ has done that. Now... The foundation that Jesus is laying in these verses here, beginning in verse 19, really kind of 17, as he explains this relationship between the Father and the Son, this helps us understand that the Father, the Father initiates. He, he sends. He, he commands. He grants authority. And the Son responds. He obeys. He performs the Father's will. And He receives His authority from the Father. We see this relationship throughout the life of Christ, uh, how the two work in conjunction with one another. Jesus is never bitter about it. In fact, in his high priestly prayer, in chapter 17 of John, he actually, he actually glorifies the Father in their relationship, and he prays that the church may be one as he and his Father are one, are united. Now, I want to I acknowledge right here at this point, that some of this is very hard to understand. Uh, this is a dense passage. There's a lot in here. I want to go a little bit slow so that we understand what Jesus is really saying. The doctrine, um, the teaching of the Trinity is hard to understand. It is hard for us to get our minds around how God can be three and one. Over the centuries, many have tried to come up with a good analogy to help shed some light on this. There aren't any. There aren't any good analogies to shed light on the Trinity. None. There are no good analogies that would fit here. Our God, who is three in one, is infinite, and He will not fit into our finite little boxes created by our finite little minds. The Westminster Confession published in 1647, so an old document. People who wrote it are all dead. This confession simply explains the Trinity like this. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. 
The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Let's go back 1,100 years. 500 A.D., the Athanasian Creed. This is drawn up by our spiritual ancestors to help explain the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I'm going to read it, but I want to change one word just so that we understand. I don't want us to get distracted. The one word I'm going to drop and I'm going to replace is the word Catholic. It simply means universal, universal Christian. I'm just going to use the word Christian, okay? It doesn't mean Roman Catholic. It just means Catholic, universal Christian. I'm just going to say the word Christian there so that we're not distracted. It goes like this. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Christian faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Christian faith. That we worship one God in Trinity, and in the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. But the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory is equal, their majesty, co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The, whole, uh, the Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. Yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty. The Son is almighty. The Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so Christian religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal, co-equal with one another. So in everything, as we said earlier, we must worship their Trinity in unity and their unity in their Trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith. 
that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus, Christ's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and He is human from the essence of His Mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human. With a rational soul, human flesh, equal to the Father as regards to divinity, less than the Father in regards to humanity, humbled Himself. Although He is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by His divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to Himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of His essence, but by the unity of His person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so too the one Christ is both God and human. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the Father's right hand, and from there He will come to judge the living and the dead. At His coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their deeds. Those who have done good will enter into eternal life. Those who have done evil will enter into eternal fire. This is the Christian faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. That is the Athanasian Creed from around the year 500 A.D. That's a long creed. Uh, There's a few things in there that 1,500 plus years of Bible study and scholarship help us to understand maybe a little bit clearer, a little bit better, some minor things that we might change even now. But the essence of the understanding of the Trinity is stressed there. Jesus and the Father and the Son are one. These, these historic creeds, uh, these historic confessions of the faith are important because they link us as Christians living in 2018. They link us together with Christians of different eras and different languages in a, in a common belief. I think it's a shame that we've neglected and forgotten them. But look at verse 19 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Beginning here at the end of this verse, that last sentence, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Um, Jesus gives us four statements uh, through verse 24. Four statements that really explain his relationship with the Father. And I would describe this relationship as not independent. I don't want to use the term dependent, while they are dependent, that kind of has some negative connotations sometimes when we think of a father and a son. And so I'm saying that they are not independent. So the first statement is this, for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Again, Jesus is not independent of the father, but this goes even further than that. This statement is not one which limits Christ, but rather it, it joins him to the work of of the Father. What Jesus is stressing here is the the perfect unity of the Father and the Son. Jesus cannot, will not, divorce Himself from the will and plan of His Father. What Jesus is implying here, and don't forget, this is all in the context of His healing of a man on the Sabbath. Um, Conversation with the Jews. What Jesus is implying here is that the authority by which he does what he does, healing, teaching, 
even on the Sabbath. The authority by which he does what he does is nothing less than the authority of God. Jesus is claiming to heal. Jesus is claiming to teach with the full authority of God. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. And then the second statement that he makes explains how it is that the Son can do whatever the Father does. Look at that first uh, statement of verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And this, this love, the love of the Father for the Son, it's not just because of Jesus' submission. It's not just because Jesus was obedient, even to the point of death. And it's also not just in the moment. Which the Father really loves the Son right now. I just really love you right now. This is a habitual, a continual, an ongoing love. The Father never ceases to love the Son. In fact, uh, the, uh, God the Father's love for God the Son is the perfect love that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. When Jesus prays to his Father that the church, uh, for the church that they may be one as we are one, and then Paul writes this about this kind of perfect love, if we're going to love one another, and that command is repeated 57 times, I don't know, tons of times in the New Testament, love one another. If we are going to love one another in the church, We need to look at the example. We need to look to the love of the Father for the Son. We need to look at the love that Jesus has for His Father if we're going to understand what perfect love really is. A a perfect example of loving unity. We can see this love, He says here, in the Father disclosing all that He does to the Son. And then the son's perfect love for his father is seen in his obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at the end of verse 20. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. Greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. The greater works, the works that they had seen, that the Jews had seen Jesus do, was this healing. This teaching on the Sabbath. That healing of that man on the Sabbath in the previous verses there in chapter 5, that's going to be overshadowed by greater things. Jesus gives us four of those greater things. Giving life to the dead, verse 21. Pronouncing final judgment, verse 22. Receiving honor, worship, verse 23. And even granting eternal life, verse 24. Those are greater things than the healing of this man. And this is going to be done so that you will marvel. But remember one thing. Jesus is talking to his opponents. He's talking to the Jews who are seeking all the more to kill him. And he says these things are done so that you may marvel. The you there isn't the church. 
The you there is his opponents. So either his enemies will be brought to repentance when they see these greater things, or the very sight of them will cause them essentially to cover their mouths in shame, one day marveling at all that they had missed, those greater things. Now there is, there is much more here. This is a dense, as I said, and compact section of Scripture. We're going to pick up here next week and look at these things. But I want to remind you of that statement that I made earlier in light of all of this. The hearer of Jesus' words can only respond with one of two possible responses. Either you will accept the truth claim that Jesus is the Son of God, as he says, or you must hate him as a blasphemer and seek to destroy him. There's no other option. Either his enemies... So these Jews standing before him that day, these Pharisees, these religious leaders who are questioning him and and seeking all the more to kill him, either they will be brought to repentance when they see these greater things that he talks about in 21, 22, 23, and 24, or the very sight of them will cause them to cover their mouths in shame marveling at all that they had missed on that day when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the unity of the church, the unity of this church, the unity of Churches, Christians, the unity of the church is a reflection of the perfect unity of the Son and the Father. It's a reflection of perfect submission, perfect obedience, perfect love, perfect glory. The unity of the church, when he says that they may be one as we are one, it's not a unity that jettisons the truth that gets rid of the truth to say, oh, we're just going to lay those things aside and stand together. The unity of the church is based on the truth of who Jesus is and who he claims to be, who he says he is here. He is the man who is God, who is continuing the work of the Father, the work of redemption, of keeping promises, keeping covenant the work of sustaining all things, the work of feeding us our daily bread. He is continuing the work of His Father, calling us to holiness. The unity of the church is a reflection of the perfect unity of the Son and the Father. Let's pray. God, as we look at these words and acknowledge that they are uh, dense. They're hard to understand. We understand that the Father loves the Son. We understand that the Son loves the Father, but often we think of love in our own terms. We think of love as the imperfect love that fathers and sons sometimes have. We think of the imperfect love in our human relationships. 
And so, God, I pray that you would help us to see the perfect love of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, for his Father, our Father, that we might see the love that the Father has for the Son, that we might see the relationship of the Godhead. And that this perfect love would be reflected in us and in our love for one another. As we look at others as more important than ourselves, as we love our neighbors as we already love ourselves, that we would tie that tightly with a love for our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Knowing that we can't do that, but Christ has done it. And because He has made us His own, granted to us His righteousness, that in Christ's power we may love our Father and our brothers, our neighbors, as ourselves. Help us to believe that, to love that, to love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.